What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Jay Martin Show. My guest today is Russell Gray, the co-host of Real Estate Guys radio show, but he does so much more than real estate. They actually sat on a panel with Russell last week, and after that panel discussion, I knew I had to get him on the show. So today we talked about Europe and China and the US and that dynamic, how it's breaking down and what he perceives to come out of that in the future. We talk about uh, Powell's strategy, raising rates, inflation, but most importantly, how that's going to impact Main Street, you know, six, nine months down the road. I got his thoughts on uh, central bank issued digital currencies, which he's very uh, concerned about. And I think for the right reasons, we went down that path a little bit. I tried to push back on some of his main concerns, but I, honestly, I feel like we're quite aligned in our belief system there. And lastly, he has a fairly unique philosophy in terms of how he leverages debt, gold, and income generating real estate into his portfolio, which is actually a puzzle that I'm assembling right now in my portfolio. So I thought this was super timely for me to get Russell on the show. I write a weekly newsletter. I would love to have you subscribe if you want to. I publish every Sunday and it's free. There's a link beneath this video or in the podcast description, depending on how you're listening to this. I love writing it. It's definitely the favorite thing that I do each week and I'd love to have you join the team. All right, here is Russell Gray. Enjoy. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined right now by Russell Gray, the co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. Russell, it's great to have you on the show. It's about time we did this. It's awesome to be on the show. You know, it was really great getting to know you when we did that panel together, and uh, it's fun to see younger people getting in this game and putting good content out there. I guess at my age, everybody seems young now. <laughs> well, I can only hang on to that headline for so long, so I'm going to leverage it while I can, Russell. Uh, yeah, that was super fun. Actually, that would be an interesting place to start. You know, we were on a panel last week. The topic was how do you fix the financial system, which makes you ask the question, what's broken within the financial system? So let me start there with you. How about that? When you look at our present state, Russell, you know, where are we most at risk? What is most likely to break and cause some serious damage within our financial system? Well, you know, at, at the real estate guys, we always talk about no investor left behind. A lot of our audience are not really financial people. They're, you know, Main Street people that are out there doing deals. So before we even talk about the financial system, let's define it so people kind of understand what it is. And in the beginning, I didn't understand what it was. You have the economy, which is people trading things that they need, labor for uh, income or people buying food, clothes, shelter, whatever it is they need. So the exchanging of goods and services for consideration is the economy. That goes on whether there's currency or a banking system or a bond market or whatever. The financial system is the system that facilitates that. And uh, actually, I should say this, the other component of, of the overall system, you got the economy, which is what drives the, the need drives it for everything. Uh, currency is the medium of exchange. You know, if I don't want what you are wanting to sell me, uh, but I want something you have, I can't trade with you. I'm going to use a medium of exchange. In this case, you know, we use dollars, you know, whatever currency you use. Uh, it used to be that money and currency were one and the same, money being a store of value and currency being the thing you exchange value. The, when we came off the gold standard globally, 
currency and money became separated. So those are two different components, yeah. currency and money. So you've got the economy, you've got the currency, you've got the money, and then you've got the systems where people can save, aggregate savings, get loans. That's the banking system. That's part of the financial system. And then you have the credit markets, which is the kind of the plumbing underneath the banking system, which is basically the bond market. Of course, you have the stock market out there, which is you know where people invest in companies and whatnot. But the financial system doesn't really encompass that. It really is the 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 financial system is the banks and the bond market or the credit markets, the currency, money, and you know the people's need, the economy. So you ask me the question, what am I paying attention to? What am I most concerned about? The bond market. I think that if you understand that bond values are inverse of yields, meaning interest rates, when you lower interest rates, you blow up a bond bubble. Paul Volcker reset the entire world in the early 1980s when he took U.S. interest rates up to over 20%. And so what happened is subsequently a 40-year cycle or 40-year period phase of lowering interest rates the inverse of lowering interest rates is rising bond value. So that's a 40-year bubble. So when you listen to these pundits talk about the bond bubble, that's what they're talking about. And we hit the zero bound and stayed there for, I don't know, seven years or 10 years, whatever. It was a long time. We just stayed at zero. And every time we've tried to take interest rates up, we begin to collapse the financial system because mm -hmm. the bond values begin to collapse. Well, inflation got to be so bad They've decided they're going to raise interest rate come hell or high water. And that's exactly what's happening uh, in terms of disruption to the financial system and balance sheets, as we saw with the Bank of England and their pension funds uh, bailout and just bond portfolios everywhere. So that, that's what I'm paying attention to. There's a lot of nuances to that, but you can't even understand the conversation, I think, until you understand the mechanics of actually what's going on. That's really the crisis of interest rates right now, my opinion. Now you talked about the the forty year bull market and uh, in bonds, right? And some mutual friends of ours, individuals like Luke Roman, Grant Williams, they're forecasting the end of that era, right? Yep. The end of the bond bull market, right? And as Luke says, um, the end of the fly, uh, what the end of the era of the fly, the beginning of the era of the spider. I'm botching that. Doesn't matter. Anyways, you know, a return to commodities and hard assets. When you think about, though, that we were talking right before I record here, you know, the Fed's going to have to make a choice pretty soon, whether they're going to swoop in and rescue the bond market, right? Or, or they're going to have to choose between that or the dollar. And your expectation is that they will sacrifice the dollar to rescue the bond market. Is that in conflict with Luke and Grant's prediction that we're walking towards the end of the bond market, the bond bull market? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, because I think what they're saying probably without having spoken to them, although I do follow both of them, I think that you know what they're recognizing is that when you raise rates, you collapse bonds prices. That's one level of pain. So balance sheets, uh, you know, begin to lose net worth. So if if you're a real estate investor, like you know our, our audience is, if if I have a a million dollar property with a seven hundred thousand dollar loan on it, and the price goes down twenty percent. Uh, the loan stays the same. I still have 700,000 uh, and now my equity has been destroyed. Well, that's kind of the way it works uh, in the bond market. So I've got bonds on my balance sheet. And when those bond prices go down as a result of rising yields, 
I used to have to mark my balance sheet to market, but I think they eliminated some of those rules because that would have exposed everybody's insolvency. Uh, right. So that's what happened in 2008. They go, oh, we got to change the rules so we can we can hide the fact that everybody's actually broke, right? It, it, it's, it's fake uh, because they're carrying it at book value and, and street value is very, very different. Uh-huh. Um, so that, that's, that's one order of problem. So the, 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 the question you is, break that down for me that the mark to market rule, Russell, and, and what that meant, we removed that in 2008, if I understood that correctly, is that correct? Yeah. Somewhere in there in, 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 in as they were beginning to change the regulations to hide what was going on. Uh, it's just uh-huh. like generally accepted accounting principles allow a lot of shenanigans, right? If people just kept books the way households do, you can't hide things that are going on, right? If, yeah. if you, your cash isn't flowing in the right direction, you find it very quickly. But zombie companies can exist for a long time with, with accounting tricks. They can hide the fact that they're broke. Governments can do the same thing. And so with the mark to market, it means you have to mark your balance sheet to the market price. So if I have assets on my balance sheet, it doesn't matter what I paid for them. It doesn't matter what the book value is, what it was when I booked them. Right. It matters what it is today in the open market. And I estimate that based on what's trading in the market. And I mark my balance sheet to that. And I report my financials that way. The problem is if I'm holding assets that have declined by 20 or 30% and my, my margin, my capital on my balance sheet is 20 or 30%, then the, the minute I do that, I've exposed my insolvency. Yeah. And that creates a whole level of problems. So to hide that, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a bond analyst. I'm not a paper asset guy. I watch it because I know all that stuff is going to roll downhill on Main Street where I live. Yeah. But but when I see that they change the mark to market rules, I'm just thinking to myself, okay, they're hiding the fact that they're broke. They don't want to realize the loss until they have time to maybe reflate the bond bubble. So if I if I remove the mark to market, if I if I'm the Fed and I'm making all these rules, I say, okay, I'm going to remove the mark to market requirement. Now we don't have to admit to anybody that the market is broke. And so we're going to go into the bond market now. We're going to start buying bonds, bidding yeah. on bonds. And so the Fed doing that putting things on their balance sheet exploded their balance sheet from 800 billion, which had been pretty stable, just inching up slowly, steadily up until 2008. And then it exploded from 2008 to 2012, I think it was, from 800 billion to four and a half trillion. And they tried to they tried to quantitatively tight, in other words, sell off some of their balance sheet or at least not roll it over when securities uh, bonds came due. They didn't they didn't, you know, uh, buy any more. They just let the stuff fall off their balance sheet. But pretty soon when COVID hit, they had to ratchet it back up again. And they took their balance sheet from like $4 trillion to $9 trillion in an even shorter period of time. Uh-huh. And they tried to suck up a lot of that and hide it in bank reserves and put it at different places so it didn't make its way into the economy. And I've heard people say, well, uh, the reason we have inflation is because Janet Yellen flushed a trillion dollars out of the treasury reserves into the economy and ignited inflation. So maybe that's true. But my point is the bond, the the Fed went on the process of printing money to purchase bonds, to reflate the bond market. And they bought themselves time by eliminating the mark to market accounting. Okay. So that's, that's just one level of pain. You magnify the pain with margin. Now, most stock investors who've ever traded on margin know what that is, right? You're going to be going to go in and I'm going to buy stock for, you know, two to one leverage. So I'm going to put up half the money and I'm going to get all the stock 
and I'm betting it's going to go up and I'm going to make, you know, double my, whatever the move is, you know, to the upside. So if it moves 5%, I'm going to make 10 or whatever the number is. Of course, the reverse is true. If it goes down, I'm going to get the dreaded margin call. So they're either going to sell my stock out from under me and I'm going to take the loss with no hope of recovery, or I've got to bring cash to pay down my loan until I have two to one leverage. So I use this to explain it in real estate. If I bought a $100,000 house with an $80,000 loan, and the property went down in price to eighty thousand dollars. No, well, actually, yeah, you know, I'm going to use. Let me use simpler leverage. So, if I bought a hundred thousand dollar house with fifty thousand dollars, so I'm at two to one leverage, just like in the stocks. Yep. The property goes down to eighty thousand. In order to restore my leverage ratio, I have to pay down my fifty thousand dollar loan to forties because forty is half of eighty. That means I have a ten thousand dollar cash call. Okay, so what what ha- what's been happening is for people who are investing in bonds who cannot get an adequate yield, they found out that they could borrow money at a couple percent, and if they could put you know let's call it twenty five percent down just to do the math, um, on 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 four times as many bonds, then they could get eight percent yield on their two percent cost of funds and make a plus six, yeah, which is all wonderful until the bond prices go down. And so when you're looking at a 40-year history and go, hey, it's been all bull all the time, then you you lever up. And the other thing is you look at what happened last time and say, and if we get this wrong, they'll bail yeah. us out Yeah, because that's yeah. what they do every single time. So it's it's total gambling. And it's all created because the central banks held, real, uh, held investment or uh, interest rates too low for too long. And the only way these bond investors could make a yield was to use leverage. And now that leverage, when you raise interest rates, cuts the other way. And so my theory is, and I'm, I'm going to run this by some other folks I'm on a panel with tomorrow morning. I'm excited about it. Uh, my theory is the reason we have a strong dollar right now is because bond, bond portfolios are blowing up everywhere that have been margined. They're getting these margin calls and they got to raise cash. And nobody knows it because nobody had to mark their their portfolio to market. So nobody nobody really knows how bad it was. Last time there were derivatives nobody could see. And so when the subprime market blew up and subprime security started going down in value, they triggered margin calls and nobody knew how levered they were. Well, we all found out. But now you you know you've hidden some of the problems and you've blown up the bond market. The bond in, you know the global debt is way bigger, meaning there's more bonds in circulation. Uh, out there than ever before. So the effect of these interest rates, I think, can be severe on bond portfolios. And depending on how bad the leverage is, there's going to be a huge demand for dollars to unwind those. And I think that's why we've got temporarily high dollar, 20-year high on the DXY, uh, which is causing a downward pressure on gold, which in my opinion is holding up really well, consider you're looking at a 20-year high on the dollar. So... Uh, I think that you know it, it speaks volumes about how stable gold is, even in the face of this type of crisis, which I'm super excited about. I, I like that perspective because I have a lot of people ask me, why isn't gold performing, giving all the macro factors at play today? And where we always come back to is like, it's not a gold story. This is a US dollar story. Gold's actually held up really well in every other currency outside of US dollars and Russian rubles, actually. But everywhere else in the world, gold's been a great place to hold your wealth. So let me ask you a question, Russell. What's the impact on Main Street, right? Say the Fed maintains course, 
keeps on cranking up rates incrementally, more bond portfolios blow up, more margin calls, more demand on US dollar. What's the impact for, for Main Street in that scenario, that true credit crash where people aren't, well, I guess are no longer worried about uh, return on capital, but return of capital in the credit market? Yeah, well, in the short term, it's going to mean anything that depends on credit, whether to operate or to maintain its price is going to uh, slow down or collapse. So real estate, very dependent upon uh, healthy credit markets. If those credit markets collapse, it'll take prices with it. That's what happened in 2008. There's a lot of air, what I call air, uh, which is, is, is leverage dollars from the future being inserted into the present to bid up prices. So anything that is dependent upon that air pump coming into the jump house, I call it, uh, is you're going to see a decline. Businesses that operate heavily on credit and can't access credit are going to have problems. Uh, and maybe even capital intensive industries, uh, you know, you look at something like mining, they're going to have to raise equity. They're not going to be able to tap the credit market. So anything, the people who are already anticipating that, and I go back to looking at Ford Motor Company versus GM in the run up to 2008. If you go back and look historically, the leadership at Ford could see the problem coming and they had an over billion dollar line of credit. They drew completely down and sat on cash going into 2008. They saw it coming. GM did not do that. And of course, GM got bailed out, but had capitalism been allowed to take its natural course, the smart player, Ford, would have been rewarded for its foresight and GM would have been punished for its uh, lack of foresight. And then a lot of the business that GM lost would have would have accrued over to Ford, right? The cars would have still been made and yeah. jobs would have still existed. So the idea that the government had to come in and preserve GM was false because those jobs weren't going to disappear. They were just going to be rewarded to better management. That wasn't allowed to happen. But but the point is, is that Main Street is going to experience a real slowdown on everything that depends on credit. And housing is a big part of the economy. So, you know, we're gearing up for that. And, you know, we're not looking at it as a negative thing at all, because if you're in position when asset prices collapse, it's shopping time. It's time you can pick up quality assets. Uh, and so it's, now's the time to get liquid. Now's the time to um, get your teams in place, get your markets in place and, and so on. So that'll be the temporary impact on Main Street. If I'm correct, and in order to save that, they revert back to quantitative easing, the Fed pivot, what Bank of England did to save their pension funds, which is yeah. like, okay, we're going to print as much money as necessary, as much currency as possible, and buy these bonds. Then it's going to be a destruction of their, their currency, a destruction of their purchasing power, more inflation. And so the consensus, I'm at the New Orleans in, uh, Investment Conference as I'm uh, you know, sitting with you right now, and the consensus that I've heard from several speakers here is that the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place right now, because if they don't raise interest rates, they're going to continue to have inflation. But if they do raise interest rates, uh, they're going to uh, end up creating a, a recession or crashing the financial system. And I think that Lawrence Lepard and a couple of other you know, people I think have affirmed what I believe, which is the biggest threat. And what Danielle uh, DiMartino Booth said at our summit last year or this last June uh, is that is that the bond market's the biggest threat. So I think that in the short term, Main Street is going to see a slowdown of, of uh, asset prices and uh, economic activity dependent on healthy credit markets, a lack of access to credit themselves. 
Uh, and then you're going to see in the long term, the destruction of the currency. And so if you're on Main Street, you know, you've got to be prepared for those things in that order. And then you just have to watch for the science to see if that thesis is correct or not. And the destruction of the currency occurs when the Fed pivots in order to save the credit market, because essentially what you're saying, Russell, is that, you know, as we roll this game plan forward, um, we see the bond market collapse. This creates a systemic collapse among the, you know, uh, multiple thousands of zombie companies that operate in the United States and up in Canada and around the world. Real estate market collapses. The credit market essentially disappears. That's not really an acceptable outcome, right, for, for the Fed. So at this point, we're we're pivoting to save that outcome at the cost of the U.S. dollar, right, which will lead to, so walking down this path now, post-Fed pivot, you talked about the destruction of the currency. And this this will be the better option of the two horrible choices at a certain time, correct? Yes, but I think that they're willing to do that. And of course, I have zero uh, inside information. You know, someone like Danielle knows better how the people at the Fed actually think. I've never had a conversation with anybody. I heard Alan Greenspan speak once. Um, basically, what he said is, you know, all the stuff you guys talk about here, the, the people in the Eccles building, they know all that. <laughs> which tells you, I don't know, you know how Alan Greenspan is kind of famous for talking between the lines. In other words, is he saying they're doing it on purpose? I don't know. Yeah. But, but I think that I believe if I'm sitting there, what's easier to fix the balance sheets of all of the people that are going to be damaged by uh, an implosion of bond prices, the banking system, or is it easier to replace the currency? I think it's easier to replace the currency. I think you're already hearing talk, many countries, of having their own central bank digital currency. Uh -huh. uh, I think that the Fed would like to maintain world reserve currency status because it gives the, uh, the U.S. immense power around the world. Uh -huh. Just look at how much China and Russia have been working together to try to de-dollarize and get out of the system. And look how the dollar was weaponized against Putin when the U.S. didn't like his move on Ukraine. Yeah. And think whatever you want about it. But, you know, when when you're in a system where if somebody disagrees with you politically or what you're doing, they can choke you out of the lifeblood of commerce, which is the currency system, the banking system. They have power. OK, well, if you've listened to my buddy George Gammon talk about this, if, if we get a central bank digital currency and our U.S. dollar becomes uh, obsolete, then the only way for us to conduct business is with the central bank digital currency. How are we any different than the sovereign nations that were dependent upon the, the U.S. dollar and the U.S. banking system in order to operate? And if you say something that the uh, powers that be don't like, if they can censor you on social media, why wouldn't they choke you off just like they did Putin? from your ability to purchase. And they have the ability to see everything you buy, every everything you sell, um, and they can just cut you off and, and really uh, punish you uh, if, if they choose. Now, I'm not saying that they're bad people and they're going to do that, but there's an old saying, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you, if the only way to conduct commerce in a system is through a state-sanctioned currency, and that currency can be cut off and tracked with 100% accuracy because it's technological. Mm. I think that's the biggest threat to individual liberty, financial prosperity and freedom, and certainly um, 
political discourse. Very, very concerned about that. I think what will end up happening is people will go underground. You know, they do a war on drugs. It doesn't stop people from using drugs. They tried to, in the United States, we had a constitutional amendment, amendment prohibiting alcohol. Didn't stop alcohol consumption. We have laws against murder and stealing. People do it all day long. I just think that what will emerge is a giant underground economy, just like in any country you've seen where their currency fails. I mean, like, you know, there, there's an official exchange rate, say in Venezuela, Bolivar's to dollars and on, in, on the black market in the real world where you do the exchange is completely different ratio. So I think people, we can't control that. I think if, if we have the opportunity to push back against the concept of a central bank digital currency, we should. That's my, my opinion. You can disagree with me, but that's my opinion. And yeah. I think that we should be prepared in terms, terms of forming a community, becoming part of a community that people we can trade with, learning how to barter. Uh, having things in your possession that people would want to trade for. You know, I have ammo, I have uh, gold and silver. Uh, you you know, you you end up with goods and services you think people might want. That gets you to bridge a gap. Uh, I think that Bitcoin and, and, and currencies that are outside of their control uh, right now are something that is interesting to me. My only concern is I have a saying, if it's tech, it's tracked. Now, I know there's a lot of Bitcoin enthusiasts that are like, no, 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 Bitcoin. I, I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm just an old guy and I'm not smart enough to understand it, but I, I definitely would not bet the farm on any form of cryptography. Mm. I feel like any code can be broken and any technology can be tracked. I'd want to have the ability to actually barter outside the banking system. And if, you know, precious metals exchanging hands, you know, over the fence, uh, nobody can see it, nobody can track it and you get what you need. And I, yeah. that, 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 that would be something I would want to at least have as an option. Uh, and that's that's the key word, right? Like a lot of what you said, it's very dramatic, right? And it's, uh, you know, you wrap your mind around, are we going to live in a world where we're having to barter and exchange and alternative currencies outside the mainstream financial system? No, I can't imagine that, right? Like we're not going to go there. We're not going to go that far, you know, but if the previous two and a half years or any demonstration about how many new precedents can be set in terms of sovereignty, autonomy, government intervention, and just disruption of life, you know, I think the remainder of this decade will be just like the previous uh, couple of years of it, a continued trajectory of sort of chaotic and unpredictable events. I think we're just getting started, unfortunately. And and I'm not a pessimist. I, you know, I'm a very optimistic person and I'll bet all day long on human ingenuity. You know, the CBDCs, I agree, 100% coming. Payments Canada's website says the same thing. We are currently developing a central bank issued digital currency. We have no plans to use it. We just want to be ready if and when the day comes where it's necessary. So, you know, take from that whatever you want. The privacy thing, as I've said on the show, and you know, the internet chews me up for it, doesn't bother me so much because I feel like that ship has sailed, right? Like everything I type into my smartphone, everything I'm saying to you right now is already being logged, recorded, scanned, right? And I'm, I'm subject to demonetization on my YouTube, all this stuff, right? Like screen capture, you know, you download any number of apps, they get access to any all the files on your phone. This that ship sailed. The privacy thing, I, I think. We well, yes, that. but Jay, let me just say this: what you're doing is you're sleeping in the cage with the lion. The lion's in the cage with you, and the lion's sleeping, and so right. you're okay with it. But if the lion turns on you, you're not going to be okay with it. Oh, oh yeah, no, I'm with and, you there. And, and so Absolutely. that's where I'm like, okay, the lion, you know, and I are cool right now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if if something happens, I want to know how to get out of this situation pretty quickly. I think people yeah. need to have the ability to know how to go underground, uh, at least temporarily, and hope that clean, clearer heads will prevail. Um, yeah. 
you know, so. And yes, and, I'm not... and, and one other thing too, just to go back, because you think, oh, this is unprecedented. No, it's not. Imagine being in the United States of America, 1930. You're carrying gold around in your pocket. And you have gold savings at your home. You you can go to the bank and turn in your certificate, your 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 dollars, which are claims for either gold or silver, and get that back. Okay. And then the government comes out not by vote. They didn't ask for a popular vote and they didn't ask the representatives by edict. The president of the United States, Executive Order 6102, outlaws your ability to own money, to own money. And you have to turn it in and they buy it back for $20 and 67 cents. Mm. And as soon as they've collected all the money, they revalue it at $35, basically giving you a 75% haircut. Yeah. Right. And so that happened. Now, the only I, I, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know why. I think Americans were more trusting of their government and less able to rally and communicate than we are today. Mm. I don't know why there wasn't a revolt right there and then. But if you're sitting there thinking, hey, you know, they're not going to create a digital currency and only allow me to use it and outlaw all this other stuff. Well, they've done it before. And so yep. you just have to yep. be aware that they could do it again. Yeah. And, I, and I'm with you. And when I say, you know, we've already signed that permission slip, like I'm not happy about it. But like, if you want to operate a business, you know, today you, you need a digital presence. You need a social media presence, the same as you needed a physical address and a phone number in the 80s to run your business, right? You need that stuff today. It's key infrastructure. Along with that, we've already signed away our privacy. And I'm not happy about it with the CBDCs. There's an additional layer though. You know, it's not just the privacy, it's the loss of autonomy over your wealth. And you touched on that, right? And that's that's the ability for personal sanctioning. I mean, that's what this is, right? The ability yeah, right. for personal sanction. sanction down to the individual. Yes. yes and so absolutely. I think you want to have the ability to operate outside of that, just like the ability to live off the grid if you have to. It's not going to be your primary thing. It's not as convenient, but you want to have that ability. I yeah. think that we have become dependent, and I'm guilty of this. For 10 years, we ran Investor Mentoring Club uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we had hundreds of people right there in the Bay Area we met with once a month. And I had a big tribe, lots of relationships, people I could do business with, trade with, uh, people that thought the way I thought we were all friends. It was great. It's like being part of a church, actually, except they were for investors. And then in 2012, we decided to go digital. And so we expanded the Real Estate Guys radio show and we went podcasting. And now we do big events and people fly in from all over to get together with us. Well, in 2020... We couldn't do any of our live events. Remember the year of the Zoom meeting? It was the only way you could meet with your tribe. Hmm. And I, I looked at that and I said, you know what? I think that even though I'm going to continue to do that, nothing's changed. I'm going to add to it the building of a local tribe in the town where I live. And I'm starting mentoring clubs and I'm meeting with people in person once a month, building those relationships. So I have people I know, like, trust. Uh, and we can do business together if we had to go underground. Now, I'm not talking about breaking the law. I'm just talking about not using infrastructure that's designed to surveil us. Uh, yeah. We have the right to trade, right? Nobody can, you know, that those are, you know, nobody can stop us. If, if I like your shoes and want to trade them for my shirt, you know, I can do that. We can do that. 
And I just think you, you know, but you got to have people. If if the only way you can do that is to get on a Zoom call or fly across the country, it's going to be very inconvenient. So, and again, I'm not saying this is going to be the new normal. This is going to be, oh, we're going back to a thousand year uh, dark ages. But I'm saying that there's a lot of volatility in the system right now. And I just think uh-huh. it would be wise to be in a position to be able to last three months, six months, a year uh, with all the core infrastructure that we're used to being dependent upon being disrupted, unavailable, limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, it, you know, to, to quote Simon Black from Sovereign Man, you know, if you put these precautions in place and nothing bad happens, how are you worse off? Sure. You just have a stronger community more than you just have a stronger community. So, yeah, you know, that's what I am doing. agree. I love that. And you put it in perspective because often when you have conversations like this, um, you may get like labeled as you're some kind of a prepper. Like, what are you expecting here? You know, but there's, there's levels to this and to be prepared doesn't mean that I need to know how to grow my spinach, harvest my beef, fix my car and my electrical. I don't need to know all that, but I'm in a better situation if I know the people that do. Right. Well, let me give you an example in that because you know, I'm a real estate guy and we teach syndication. So, um, if you were to go and get together with a group of people in your community and say, look, I don't want to run a garden. You probably don't want to run a garden. And so rather than do that, why don't we pool our money and buy a community farm and run it as a business? And that way we're invested in the land. We are invested in the business. And if we have a disruption in food supply as owners, we're first in line to get the produce of the land that we operate. Now we create an amenity in the community. We make our community stronger. Instead of sending our capital to Wall Street, and I hate Wall Street, by the way, uh, instead of sending your money to Wall Street, you're, you're just Main Street investing in Main Street. And and so, you know, working on different projects as we build these local communities to do those types of things. Okay. And again, it's it's like, hey, if nothing happens, then all we have is a community farm that's a business and it's great. It's something fun. And I can point to that amenity in the community and go, hey, my partners and I provided this community that. It's the same as if I would have built an apartment building or a shopping center or a mobile home park or you know, whatever. Uh, and, and so there are some practical things that investors can do. This isn't about like, okay, I'm going to forego all my traditional investing. I'm going to forego return on investment. I'm just going to live off the grid. I'm going to, I'm going to go live in a, in, you know, like Ted Sazinski. <laughs> I'm going to go live in the, in, in the mountains of Montana somewhere in a shack and live off the, I, we're not, I'm not saying that. I'm yeah. saying just take some practical steps right where you're at to build community and begin to reduce your reliance upon supply chains, which we've already found out. Yeah. can be totally disrupted and you have no control over it. And if you don't have a plan B, you're vulnerable. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I like that. And yeah, as you said, you don't have to be the homesteader, right? Um, but you can take some steps. Uh, I used to live in downtown Vancouver in a condo, very, very dependent as a consequence, as most people in cities are. And we moved to a town 40 minutes away of 20,000 people. And now I know the farmer who sells us our chickens and the farmer who sells me the quarter cow we buy twice a year. Um, you know, I know my web developer, little things like that. Like you think, oh, it's a web developer, but I hired local purposely, right? Yes. Just to have the relationship, a bit of trust. If you had to do, you know, off grid or whatever you want to call it, that's highly more probable if there's a personal relationship and trust, you know? And so I'm totally aligned, Russell. I love that. Um, how are you for time? I know you probably got a year to conference, but can we pivot to another topic here? How are you doing? We can, we can, I can go a little bit over. Um, You just flag me, man. Just tell me you got to jump. No worries. No, No, it's okay. Where I want to go next is, you know, you were, we were talking about this before I hit record, the relationship, as you outlined it, between 
debt, gold, and real estate. Um, a trio that a lot of people wouldn't put together. And I'm personally trying to figure it out myself. So I loved your perspective on that. Would you mind opening up that topic for me? Yeah. So uh, I did a presentation here at New Orleans called, uh, two, I did two of them, but basically how one was how to short the dollar using real estate. Because if you look at the charts, you can see that the dollar has been in decline since the Federal Reserve was instituted in 1913. There was a bit of a spike up uh, that created the, the Great Depression, and there's a whole story there. But basically, it's been on a decline. Uh, the simple example is if you just go on any website, uh, a buddy of mine runs one uh, American Gold Exchange, AMERGold.com, uh, and you can look up junk silver, and you can see that I can buy four 1964 quarters which are a face value of $1 for about $23. So if you do the math and you divide one by 23, you'll realize that you've lost 95.6% of your purchasing power since 1964. Okay. So the idea would be if I could borrow money in 1964 and get dollars and convert them into silver coins, and I would have put those in a sock drawer and waited uh, I would have done very well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I can short the dollar using debt. And so real estate allows you to do that. You can purchase an asset today at today's price and you fix in your debt, which is the majority of the purchase price, 80, 90%, you know, here in the United States. And I'm going to pay that back over 30 years. So I've effectively shorted the dollar. Now, over time, uh, because of inflation in real estate and wages and income, you're going to see the value of the real estate in terms of dollar price uh, go up. Equity, we call it equity happens because of inflation. And as that begins to happen, you can take the increase in income and use it to lever against the increase in equity to remove or extract or harvest the equity with a cash out refinance. And then you can take some of that and purchase gold. Well, why would you do that? Well, you do that because now I'm recharacterizing on my balance sheet equity in my real estate, which is bubble. It's very dependent upon credit markets. And I'm turning it into precious metals, which is not dependent upon credit markets. And actually, historically, and I showed you this chart earlier. If I can just pull that up real quick. Yeah, Let me pull, just it show it, pull it up. Show it to you guys. It's uh, right here. This is right out of the presentation I did. I took the housing chart from the Fed uh, website, Fred, everybody's familiar with that. And I went to uh, goldprice.org and I looked at the um, dollar price and I lined them up date wise. And I said, okay, well, here is the peak of the real estate housing prices in 2007. And here's where gold was. And as the real estate market was experiencing its worst collapse in history, gold did this. And so if I would have said, hey, I've got a bunch of excess equity here, and I knew that historically there was this inverse correlation. And again, I'm not saying that um, correlation is causation. <laughs> okay. I'm, I, I'm not that smart. I'm just saying that if I, if I want to use past as prologue and I look at the last time we had a credit market collapse uh, and it affected real estate, this is what happened. So if I would have extracted equity here and moved it into gold, and then this happened to me, then I come back at the peak of gold and purchase real estate here, right? And then look yeah. what happened to gold and look what happened to real estate. Yeah. So when you understand that the way you extract the equity is to get the debt, is use debt, and that makes you short the dollar. And then you use gold to be further short the dollar. 
and you protect your equity from a credit bubble burst and in fact benefit from it in terms of dollars, this can be a strategy that works. In the rest of the presentation, I kind of broke down the math because you got to do the math. It's harder to do this today because interest rates are up. When I when I did this presentation last year at the New Orleans Investment Conference, mortgage rates were down in the three. So I said, just imagine a scenario like this. You've got, uh, say you've got uh, $400,000 of available equity in a property and you uh, borrow it out and at 4%. So you've got a $16,000 dollar a year interest carry that's deductible because it's interest for investing. You go buy a high yield note, say at 8% or put in a high yield fund. And we have, you know, I, I don't do that business, but I, I, I have people that do and I can point at them uh -huh. and they, they pay a preferred rate of nine, but let's just call it eight. So now you take half of your cash out proceeds, you take $200,000 and put it in at eight. And now you've got 16,000 coming in on half the proceeds. So your cash flow neutral, that's pure arbitrage. I took out a loan and made a loan. And I have the other $200,000 free and clear. I, I, it's not my money. It's the bank money. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to pay tax on it for taking out of my real estate. So I'm able to use unrealized gains, which is fantastic mm -hmm. without a payment. And then I put that in gold. Right now, I, I my balance sheet is exactly the same. My cash flow statement is exactly the same. But I've recharacterized my equity from real estate, which is a bubble asset, to gold, which is not. And then if this inverse correlation, if I lose the equity in the real estate, I don't get a margin call on that loan. It's a very safe leverage, relatively speaking. And then I get the explosion in the gold price. Well, today you can't do you can't do two to one. I can't borrow at four and invest at eight. Uh, the example I gave was you do it at seven and a half and invest at nine. But even with a $200,000 split either way, when you did all the math, you were only negative $7,800 a year. Now that sounds like a lot. But if you view that as an insurance premium on insuring that $400,000 of real estate equity, it's 1.95% annual. That's your premium to insure your equity. Gold doesn't have to move very far uh -huh. to, to make that a winner. And, and again, when you look at the chart that I just showed you and realize what happened the last time, I'm not saying that's going to happen again, but if yeah. it did, yeah. then yeah. you're going to be very, very happy that you recharacterized your bubble equity into, into precious metals. So I think gold real estate and debt all work together to help you be short the dollar long-term. You may get spikes of the dollar like we have now, which to me is just a buying opportunity. I want to borrow as many dollars as I can and pump them into gold when I when it's cheap. Yeah. Because down the road, if the dollar index retreats, gold is going to go up and I'll be happy that I'm in gold and not dollars. Now, have you ever gotten pushback on this thesis, on this idea, Russell? If anyone's like, hey, Russell, you haven't thought about this or that any angles that um, not yet i mean i think the big thing is uh, you know i i think you need to be cautious if you're doing this on your primary residence yeah good good advice you know yeah. um i think you want to do it with income property because yeah. that way the income is coming from the tenants and you get better tax breaks which help you um absorb some of the cash flow uh, and if you end up losing control of the situation, if it's a non-recourse loan, they'll take the property, but the gold you bought with it, that's yours to keep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and again, I'm not giving anybody legal advice or tax advice. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta read your own situation, you know, your own documents and meet with your counsel. Yeah. But, um, you know, anytime you use leverage, it, it cuts, it's a two-edged sword. Yeah, but I think of all the places you could use leverage in your portfolio, real estate is the by far the safest place to use it. 
you can use the most leverage for the least risk. Mm -hmm. You don't have margin calls. You have very long terms. It's backed by an asset and, and, and uh, often you can get uh, non-recourse loans. Uh, you can get loan workouts. And your biggest issue on an income property is, well, what if the tenant defaults? Well, <laughs> the tenant defaults, you just put a new tenant in, right? Yeah. If I buy a bond or the same thing's true with notes, you know, people say, well, why would I buy a, a a mortgage, you know, private mortgage and beat the lender when I could buy a bond? Well, if a bond issuer defaults, you get zero. If a mortgage note holder defaults, you get the property. And once you get the property back, you have options. Your options are I could sell the property. I could rent the property. I could sell the property again um, and and carry back a note and create a new note with lower basis because I'm going to get a down payment. And if it goes sideways, I'll just repeat the process. So you have more exit strategies. And a lot of paper asset investors just don't understand the way real estate works. One of the reasons I like to speak at investment conferences that are not real estate conferences, like here at New Orleans, is because the audience is largely very unaware of these tools of these strategies. But, yeah. but going back to the risk, debt, it's the risk is the debt, the use of debt. Debt's a power tool. Right. I can I can hand a skilled craftsman a power tool and they can build something wonderful. If I hand it to an, a novice, it might cut their fingers off. Right. It's not the tool. Yeah. It's the skill of the user. So you want to be around people that know how to use the tool properly and then really know how to do your homework. But again, real estate is among the safest places you can use leverage. I'm going to use that as a segue to my conference, which is not a real estate conference, but an investment conference. I would love to have you at Russell this January, it's January 29th and 30th. So I'm going to make sure I pitch you hard off camera here and why you should come up. Yeah, but no, I, I already uh, I already cleared it with uh, the powers that be. Oh, good. And, uh, good. So I'm, I'm in. You just tell me what you want me to talk about and happy Love to that. sit on panels or whatever you want. We'll create some fun stuff. Okay, epic. Well, Russell, look, I really appreciate your time. I know you're between appointments and stage commitments down in New Orleans. So thanks so much for running up the, the, to the hotel room and taking this one. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with you and I look forward to doing it again. It's been fun. I'll see you in January if I don't talk to you sooner. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.